Welcome to A Look at the Issues. A Look at the Issues is a policy podcast based at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. I am your host, Suta Kavari. After a mid-summer's break, the podcast is back again, exploring the biggest policy challenges facing policymakers and governments right across the world. Now, the biggest challenge, as we know, is of course... COVID-19. And on this episode, we turn our attention to South Africa, where we examine the country's response to COVID-19 after the health minister there warned the country faced what he described as a storm of new infection. The South African government has been walking a tightrope trying to protect an underfunded and overwhelmed healthcare system, while also trying to revive a stagnant economy long hurt by years of corruption under Jacob Zuma. But with fears increasing that the pandemic is set to reach full speed, this episode of A Look at the Issues explores what went wrong in a country that was praised for having one of the most effective responses at the start of the pandemic. The country acted swiftly and very quickly to contain the initial spread of the virus by imposing one of the strictest lockdowns in the world. This prepared time for the health system to adequately prepare for waves of new infections. But now, as confirmed cases of COVID-19 rise past 300,000, the highest rate of infections on the continent and among the worst affected globally, I talked to Dr. Kerrigan McCarthy, Head of Public Health Surveillance and Response at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, about what lessons the country can draw from the response to the first wave of infections. Later on in the show, I'm joined by Dr. Miriam Altman, Professor of for AR practice at the University of Johannesburg and convener of the COVID-19 economy group. She talks about the economic fallout of COVID-19 for an economy long devastated by corruption and state hollowing. Later on in the show, I'll be joined by Dr. Anna Patherick from the Blavatnik School, who will talk to us about why the school chose South Africa as a case study in one of its policy challenge modules. This is A Look at the Issues. I certainly feel on the whole that um, this has been expertly uh, navigated in terms of the, the translation of the evidence into policy. So things weren't great in 2019. COVID hits us hard because the downturn in 2008 came after a decade of growth, whereas COVID came when firms were already on a tender hook. We wanted to come up with a case study that really brought together dramatic inequality and historical injustice and complex comorbidities in the context of an under-resourced public health system and one where it's not a, a very easy business to just borrow more money to solve all the problems. Dr. McCarthy, thank you so much for joining us here on A Look at the Issues. Now, what was fascinating for many of us about South Africa's initial response to containing the first outbreak of COVID-19 was that it, it seemed, at least from the outside, that it was broad and consultative, that it was guided by science, but it was also by informed by input from civil society, faith-based organizations, um, and it created the impression that the government that the government was listening. Now, as someone who was heavily involved in the process, did that come across? Um, did people feel that the government was listening? Absolutely. So um, early on, um, you know, from January, February, March, uh, 
and until early April. Um, the minister was um, in daily contact with the, the team at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases around the statistics, around the translation of the international experience into South African um, uh, responses, um, developing uh, responses to certain questions that came up at the time. And then um, the minister, I don't know who initiated, I assume it was the minister, initiated an advisory committee that drew on uh, people within our, um, you know, very well respected and experienced both academics and government servants, civil servants, within the TBHIV um, paradigm, context. And so that led to the formation of the Ministerial Advisory Committee. Um, and that committee had a number of subsections related to public health laboratory testing, um, can't remember that, modelling. And these um, subcommittees met regularly in response to specific questions posed by the government to the committee. Um, the minister attends these meetings intermittently, and particularly when there are pressing questions. So um, he gets a, a first-hand ear in on what the, the spectrum of, of thought and opinion is. I, I certainly feel on the whole that um, this has been expertly uh, navigated in terms of the, the translation of the evidence into policy filtered down to implementing agencies, either the provinces or uh, the organization called NATJOC, which is the National Joint Operations Center. Um, so the Department of Health is just one player in a very broad um, whole of society approach. Um, so all that to answer your question was that we there was never a theoretical framework imposed on, on how to strike. So we, we acted in a very responsive way. So, for example, no one stood back and said in a conceptual way, to what degree do we infringe on the liberties of people in order to control COVID? There was rather a grassroots response that non-pharmaceutical interventions or social distancing is really the only tool we've got. How do we apply this now? How do we learn from the experience of other countries? It seems that lockdown is the way to go. We have an incredibly vulnerable population at hand. Do we apply lockdown now or do we wait and apply it later? And there was a, um, a thinking that I wasn't party to. So I, I don't know what went into those discussions. They were made at cabinet level. Um, but there was a thinking that, that you know, earlier rather than later. Let's try and delay the peak so that we can uh, prepare as much as we're able. And if possible, contain it so that we don't have a rampant pandemic here. And what was the initial response to the lockdown? Was there any success in terms of containing the outbreak? Yeah, no, there was, there was excellent success. First, there was um, very high levels of adherence and compliance to the lockdown. Um, so that was validated beautifully on um, Google mobility data and Apple mobility data. You can see it nicely. And secondly, um, the restriction of flights, um, revoking of visas and uh, uh, travel, I think travel bans. I don't want to say travel bans because I'm not sure if we did actually ban travel. But um, we, we saw a reduction 
in the number of imported cases. And then uh, my colleague, Prof. Cheryl Cohen, has just done an analysis of the um, of the effective R naught or the the uh, in the initial phases of the outbreak, and you can see that it drops from about two to three um, to less than two uh, during the initial phases of the lockdown. So it was it was a resounding success, and I think part of the the success was um, the degree of trust that there was in in um, government. Uh, the authoritarian government voice that we heard from our president, exactly as you say, there was a great deal of empathy um, in the way the message was delivered. Um, there was consistency in reporting of cases. There was transparency in the decision-making process. And there was a clear understanding uh, in the eyes of the public around why this was being done. Now, one of the biggest recurring themes in containing the outbreak of COVID-19 has been track and trace. Could you perhaps explain to, to, to us um, how track and trace works? So one of the principles of, of uh, communicable disease containment is to identify individuals who uh, have been exposed to a, an index case, as we'll call it, and then to either offer some kind of preventive treatment, if that's available, or um, to isolate them so as to prevent uh, tra onward transmission. Um, and so that's uh, what we uh, term track and trace. Um, one of the things that uh, supports the success of tracking and tracing is uh, if individuals develop symptoms um, and if uh, the incubation period is relatively long. So that gives uh, the health services time to make the diagnosis in the index case, to make contact with the index case, to identify who the contacts are, to make to reach out to the contacts and ensure that the contacts isolate themselves, and then if the contacts are symptomatic, to make diagnoses. So if we look at Ebola virus disease, uh, the, the incidence rate is, um, sorry, the, uh, the incubation period can be up to 21 days, and the symptoms, uh, asymptomatic infection is very uncommon. Whereas one of the challenges we're seeing here in, in the South African context, and I've no doubt it's a, it's a global phenomenon, is that the incubation period is relatively short. The average incubation period is between five and seven days, but can be as short as two and a half. And we're increasingly being able to document that an enormous proportion of cases are asymptomatic but still have the ability to transmit. So we've just done an analysis of um, over a thousand cases who tested positive for COVID disease who were tested as the result of uh, outbreak, outbreak investigations in their place of work, so either in a healthcare facility or in essential services. And of that thousand people, only 42% had symptoms. The remaining 58% were asymptomatic. Now, what that tells us is that if we are to implement track and trace, if we're trying to find every single person who's exposed and test every single person who's exposed, it becomes increasingly difficult to do this because we have to target every individual who's exposed, not just those who develop symptoms. And we also have got a very short time space to do this in because the incubation period is short. And 
so all of these this emerging data is is making us ask questions around the the standardized approach that we that was advocated by the WHO and used very successfully in in China and Southeast Asian communities. Um, and we've realized that in addition to tracking and tracing, which may not always be successful, our primary role of defense against this virus has to be non-pharmaceutical interventions and social distancing. We have to be able to implement social distancing um, in a consistent and and uh, vigorous, assiduous, attention to detail manner. Because if we don't do this, um, we land up with a situation where, where we have cases and we have onward transmission and we can't track and trace individuals fast enough. That was Dr. Kerrigan McCarthy. Thank you so much for joining us. Joining us now to talk about the economic fallout from the health crisis is Dr. Miriam Altman. Miriam Altman is a professor for IR practice at the University of Johannesburg and commissioner on the National Planning Commission of South Africa, as well as the convener of the COVID-19 Economy Group. Miriam, thank you so much for joining us. Now, South Africa, like any country in the world, has been particularly hard hit by COVID-19. Um, and the extent of the economic devastation is still largely unknown. But if you could perhaps tell us, what in what shape was the South African economy pre the crisis? So the challenge South Africa was facing, um, you know, obviously we came out of apartheid and we had about a decade of growth in the 2000s. You know, the change in government was in 1994, uh, the new democratic government. And of course, it takes time to rebuild. So the finances were rebuilt. It was very controversial. and um, And the changes started to take hold at the end of the 1990s, and we saw growth for about a decade. Then, of course, there was the uh, 2008 crisis, and there was a bit of a rebound, but we never quite got back. And part of what happened was sort of a decade of growing state capture and diminishing state capability, which was a feature of our, it was a special feature of our state capture, which was hollowing out the state in, in many, many zones, um, which South Africa or any country can ill afford. And, uh, and, and what, what's been happening since about 2010 is that there has been a ratcheting down of growth rates to the point that last year in 2019, uh, you could say we, we were stagnating. If I'm not mistaken, I think growth was something like 0.2%. And we have uh, employment growth, uh, sorry, population growth of about 1.6%, which means that you're shrinking. As you know, the most important measure would be GDP per capita. So it means we were actually shrinking and employment uh, shrank last year as well, which is something you can't afford in a country that has about a quarter of the labor force unemployed. Uh, last year, it rose to 29%. And uh, almost half the population living in poverty, maybe 25% of the population even lives in food poverty in a middle-income country, which is really, is really something. So things weren't great in 2019. COVID hits us hard because the downturn in 2008 came after a decade of growth, whereas COVID came when firms were already on a tender hook. So things weren't particularly great. And the Minister of Finance, the readily memed and quotable Tito Mboweni, 
was walking a really tight rope in terms of trying to contain public spending. Um, and you touched on the fact that state capacity was also um, hollowed out during the Zuma years. Uh, and so already the picture emerging is that COVID-19 hit at a time when the economy is stagnating. How then was the government able to support the economy during lockdown? Um, and what were some of the economic relief measures that were implemented? So we had a very quick lockdown and that, that, that certainly helped us. What of course it did in a very weak economy is it, is it, it wrecks havoc. We don't have numbers yet, but the flash surveys will tell us that many firms will say they can't get across one month, two months, three months. It's too much for them because you need cash to do that. So what the UK did was they were slow on the response, on the health response, but they were fast on the economic response, right? So they immediately got, you know, in the UK, 80% of wages covered, as you know, right across the board, that type of thing. Now, um, our group, we, I, I convene a, a group of a network of, of policy and financial economists, people who've led the budget office before, you know, in, in treasury, this type of thing. Um, and we, we, the, one of the first papers we did, in fact, was to say, you need to give blanket wage support. Don't ask people if they need it. They do. By fiat, you told them to shut down after an economy that was in very, very bad shape. And specifically, you want to shut down labor-intensive activity. And by the way, that's mainly where youth and women get jobs. They almost don't get any jobs in manufacturing. This is the sad fact. So, and those firms with their labor intensity tend to have less cash reserves than in places like smelters and mines, right? So they're generally more vulnerable. You just have to say, you know what, we understand we told you to shut down. We're going to give you some money to get you across to make sure that people don't get retrenched and that you don't shut down and you don't shrink so that the economic rebound is stronger. Unfortunately, uh, so government was very quick to get strategies in place, but that use existing channels, which, you know, makes sense. Now, in thinking about a rebound for the South African economy, another thing that is going to make that difficult is the unsustainable debt levels. Um, we know a few months ago, Moody's downgraded South Africa's credit rating to non-investment grade, which would make borrowing a lot more expensive. Now, all the stimulus you have mentioned will, of course, add on to the already rising debt levels. How, how is the government able to, or how was the government able to finance the stimulus measures? For a country like South Africa with a very strong fiscal system, not many developing countries have fiscal systems as strong as South Africa's. Even, even though it's weakened, we probably have one of the strongest fiscal systems in, in a developing country. And that means we leverage it. That's why we can do the grants. The best possible thing you can do is to enable firms to operate with health protocols and collect tax, right? Because eventually, you know, when you borrow, you have to pay it off. And the only way of paying it off is through tax revenue. I know that sounds painfully obvious, but I don't know that... I, I find a lot of people... Don't internalize that. The reality is that a lot of tax revenue has been lost and we still have a lot of fixed expenditures. Very little of the budget is discretionary. Now, Miriam, if you could whisper into Finance Minister Tito Mboweni's ear, what advice would you give on the priorities 
that should be that he should focus on to jumpstart the economy. Um, and you talked about you talked about employment being a huge issue. You talked about the falling tax revenues. And so, what would be the th- what would be your three key priorities for the finance minister? Actually, I'm, I'm probably pretty well aligned with where the finance minister is. So that's probably not where you know the concern is. But the the, the critical challenges are are related to what I've said. You want to raise the lowest cost amount of money. And it's not just him, you know, he's not the one who's issuing these regulations. You want to get firms back to activity as quickly as possible. And therefore, they need a lot more support. There needs to be um, a a much stronger health and safety uh, inspectorate than what we have to make sure that firms are complying. Because, you know, if you don't do that, then you may end up in lockdown again. Right. So and, and this requires significant behavioral change. We're going to have to manage the fact that we're spending a lot of money on this, but not doing enough to raise, you know, to deal with the revenue side. So we've locked down on cigarettes and alcohol, um, which is a huge uh, issue in the country. But part of the issue, you know, I'm not a smoker. I, I can't stand smoking. But the reality is it is legal. And, and, and it's an enormous part of, firstly, what informal sector people earn. It's about 50%, I think, of, of, of their sales. And, and a huge part of tax revenue lost is, is on excise taxes and so on. So the most urgent things that we need to do, uh, and it's not just a financial um, set of issues, is these things that I've argued in this paper that I've just put out, which is, again, we've got to have widespread business support. It may not be as generous as what the UK did, but everybody needs to know that the state is there for them. Secondly, we have to get to um, risk what they, what they call risk-adjusted strategies, which means early warning systems, you know, information systems, um, testing insofar as possible. You know, we don't have access to test kits uh, easily. So it means we've got to be much better at pushing up information and optimizing, probably using AI, optimizing uh, the use of testing so that it's much more effective, at least once by the time you're in the hospital, to get tests back within 24 hours. Um, we need to have uh, more effective contact tracing. We need the ability to quarantine, and we don't have any strategies I can make out in our townships and informal settlements. If you, if people go to work, you can't tell them to go home uh, and quarantine. Where the hell are they going to quarantine? You know, you've got to have a solution, be it at work, be it wherever. But it, it's 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 nonsensical to think people can go back to a shack or an informal settlement where people share. A taps and toilets and it's it's just too dense it's impossible the houses are too small so these things be, you know so therefore you know so one is the is the support two is the risk adjusted strategies and three is the community engagement to figure out what might work um Miriam, perhaps in way of closing um what could an economic recovery look like and how long would it take for the economy to start showing signs of growth again? Yeah, well, I think a lot depends on these things that I just raised. I think the rebound, you know, you depend a lot on the rebound. Even if you fell by 20%, if you have what they call a V-shape recovery, look, it's not great to fall by 20%, but if you bounce back by 20%, it's kind of not the end of the world. You can, you can move on from there. It's not ideal, but you can move on. Um, I think generally, globally, very few people still think a V-shape is possible. Um, now, I th- firstly, I spoke about a reverberation. Even after you lock down, I think there will still be a lot of firm failure and retrenchments. 
just because firms, they just teeter. They teeter on the brink. And eventually it's just too much for them. Um, so I think the rebound, which is incredibly important, will be softened. It'll, it, it will be less strong if we don't do the three things I mentioned, which is getting firms across the way, introducing these risk-adjusted strategies that I mentioned, you know, the early warning systems and the ability to respond, and enabling firms to comply as we open up, and the community engagement that gets people on board and behaving. If we don't do that, we can easily end up in another lockdown. It can be that, that politicians lose nerve and lock down again, et cetera. Now, um, and certainly firms will lock down and shut, which of course also doesn't help the rebound. The modeling that we have in our scenarios, basically we're guessing that there could be a sort of two thirds bounce back in 2021. So if there's a fall of say 15%, you bounce back by maybe 66% in the following year. And then following that, the success of, the, of, of, of continuing on depends on the structural reforms, whether or not we start introducing the kind of improved state capacity, infrastructure implementation, reform of electricity markets, energy markets, um, and, and so on. So the question is whether we revert to stagnation or whether we start on a slow and steady upward trend. Um, that is what we have in our scenarios. And of course, they're, they're explained in the paper. But that, that's how we see that. Now, that doesn't take into account possible global scenarios, which matter, they matter enormously to a country like South Africa and to the rest of Africa. Because of course, most of us are reliant on commodity exports. South Africa is more industrialized, but it really still does mat matter very much. You know, about half of our exports are still sort of metal, metals and minerals. 80% um, of our sales to China are sort of uh, iron, iron ore type of products related. Manganese, iron ore, three or four products in that zone to China. So when their demand falls, and, and they're our biggest trade partner, we have problems. Miriam, thank you so much for joining us. That was Dr. Miriam Altman, Professor for IR Practice at the University of Johannesburg, a Commissioner on the National Planning Commission of South Africa, and Convener of the COVID-19 Economy Group. Miriam, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, my name is Anna Petherick, and I'm a lecturer at the Bavatnik School of Government. And with Emily Jones, I'm running a Policy Challenge 2 course on responses to COVID-19. Policy Challenge 2 has a very important place in particular in the MPP calendar um, and in the syllabus because we give you all of these um, theoretical core modules, right? We stuff your heads with, with, with facts and analytical tools, but actually what you're going to do if you're a policymaker is have to make decisions on the fly without, you know, time to go home or go to the library and really think about it. So Policy Challenge 2 is really the chance to embrace that kind of um, situational learning. You're put in a position where you have to start making decisions, negotiating in real time. 
at the point when we were designing the course, we didn't know a whole lot about how South Africa was, was going to respond. We only had a few weeks of data to work with. And then going back to the question of why are we running this course, you know, what do we want people to get out of it? Um, well, really, many people on, in the cohort today are going to go home and this is what they're going to have to be dealing with. They're going to have to, in, you know, in their jobs, figure out how to respond to perhaps future ways of COVID, how to think about different kinds of recovery policies in many different countries. So we wanted to select a, a case study that would really bring together many of the, of the complexities that different people are going to face in lots of different countries. And so we wanted to come up with a case study that really brought together dramatic inequality and historical injustice and complex comorbidities in the context of an under-resourced public health system and one where it's not a, a very easy business to just borrow more money to solve all the problems, right? And so South Africa really brought together all of these different characteristics with a kind of additional benefit of having some pretty high-level research institutes. So there's reasonably good information available to follow what's actually been going on. And of course, everything's available in English. And that's all we've got for you on this episode of A Look at the Issues. If you want to find out more about the economic ideas that Miriam was talking about, you can find them on COVID19economicideas.org. That is www.COVID19economicideas.org. I'm from me, Suta Kavari. Have a great day and thank you so much for listening. A Look at the Issues is a policy podcast based at the Blavatnik School of Government. It is researched by Jasmina Bidet and Shavika Misra, project managed by Desmond Otome and produced by Ellen Tipping, James Morris and Fred Davis. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. We are at A Look at the Issues. Or you can also get in touch with us via email. You can send us an email on studentpodcast.com at bsg.ox.ac.uk. From Isutra Kavari, thanks for listening and see you next week. Goodbye.